Can two sports betting ballot initiatives in California share a statewide ballot without driving each other crazy? Plus, Massachusetts debates a sports betting bill and the eyes of the gaming world turn their attention to Boston next month for the National Council of Legislators of Gaming States Summer Conference. And we'll have two of the conference co-chairs as guests today on Conduct Detrimental. All right, welcome everybody to Conduct Detrimental. I'm Daniel Wallach, your co-host. Joining me today is Michael Lawson, one of our contributors at Conduct Detrimental. He's the producer of the podcast. Michael, welcome to the co-hosting chair again for another sports betting related episode. Dan, how's it going? I always appreciate digging into the weeds of sports gambling and the legislation that is happening, might not be happening, we don't know. We'll have to see by the end of the, uh, the session. Yeah, I always like dragging you into this stuff because you really enjoy the the sort of discussion and debate around sports betting legislation. And even in your professional life, you have some connection uh, to the gaming world. You were part of the legal team that argued the daily fantasy sports case in New York State. So I know you're intimately familiar with a lot of the gaming issues that occur in the in the courts. And we, we might have several of them. We're going to start today with California. Now, I teased the episode by making reference to that old odd couple, you know, the odd couple theme song for most of our audience. They're probably not, not going to have any idea what I'm talking about, uh, but there are two divorced, uh, you know, men who were forced together as roommates. They were best friends, their wives threw them out of the house and they were forced to live together and coexist side by side. Well, they were able to do that legally. However, there are questions as to whether the two separate ballot proposals that are slated to be on the ballot for election day can actually coexist side by side and both be passed into legalization. I know uh, we've had some examples over the past three to four years of states going to the ballot to approve sports betting. I think that happened in Colorado, South Dakota, Louisiana, where the ability to have sports betting was put to the statewide electorate, but we've never had a situation where there have been multiple ballot initiatives or ballot questions directed to the same subject of sports betting. And we have our first instance of that happening in California where a coalition of Indian tribes have proposed a ballot question that would legalize sports betting only in person at tribal casinos and at select commercial horse racetracks. And the tribal proposal would prohibit any wagering on collegiate games involving California colleges and universities wouldn't have a, spec- a specified tax rate. But if the, if, if the ballot measure was approved by the electorate, the state and the tribes would have to negotiate class three gaming compacts. So there would be a little bit of a delay in the rollout. So that's the retail initiative. The online initiative, which is sort of the counterbalance to the retail initiative, is being proposed by DraftKings, FanDuel, WinBet, Caesars, and a number of the other prominent online sports betting companies. And what they're proposing is the legalization of online sports betting by creating these partnerships uh, and market access agreements between the online sports betting companies and the Indian tribe. So, you know, without overly complicating it, we have two competing ballot initiatives, one that's retail in-person betting only, and the other that's online sports betting only. So, Michael... Let me pose the question. If you're a voter in California, would you be confused by the presence of two questions on, on the same subject? Well, I think you said it perfectly, right? You, you put it so elegantly. Based upon your explanation of both of the bills, you said that it was overly complicated. When you are a voter going into the ballot, you want to be an informed voter. You want to know what you're voting for. And I think it's a good avenue and a good use to propose for sports gambling and, and states that have to put it to a vote, put it to the voters, put it to the people. However, that's the key issue. It is overly complicated and it's difficult to become an informed voter when you have two bills that are directly competing against each other, where 
is there potential for you to vote yes for both? Is it yes, no, no, yes, no for both? I, I mean, you have to go into this ballot as an informed voter. What do these voters need to know going in where they're like, I, I do I want online? Do I only want retail? If I pick the online, will I never have the chance to have retail? Vice versa? Yeah, well, these questions are going to get fleshed out as we get closer to Election Day. Uh, the Secretary of State will, will ordinarily prepare what's known as a ballot pamphlet that will explain both initiatives to the voters. But, you know, underneath or sort of, you know, some of the hidden issues are, you know, one, one topic that you raised uh, in, in one of your questions. Can they both coexist? Can If you vote yes for one and yes for the other, can they both be passed into legalization? And I think that question hasn't really been addressed yet in the public domain. And I'm of the view that Californians are going to be faced with a clear choice. The ballot, the ballot questions aren't confusing in and of itself because they pose two diametrically opposite sports wagering landscapes. You know, on, on the one hand, the tribes favor in-person only. And on the other hand, the online sports betting companies want to pass online sports betting. There's nothing too complicated about that. But what what isn't really known about the initiatives is that they are in conflict with one another, not simply because one is online and the other is retail. But there's some language in the co in the tribal retail proposal that suggests that the only way to conduct sports betting safely is to allow it only at suitable locations and to limit sports wagering to highly regulated and safe facilities that are experienced in gambling operations. And those two, those two provisions that I'm reading verbatim out of the tribal retail proposal uh, are essentially a, a statement that anything beyond retail sports betting would violate the state constitution. They're trying to confine and limit sports betting to these uh, locations and facilities, which uh, negates any possibility of allowing online sports betting to be conducted outside of those facilities. So we're going to be on a collision course. And the question that so many people have been asking, Michael, is, well, if you have, if you have two or more initiatives, will that mean that it's mutually assured destruction, that the, the electorate will be floundering at the ballot box. They're going to be crying and like, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Uh, th these initiatives will fail because the voters won't be able to separate or distinguish between the two. I don't think that's going to be the case because with, with there's retail and then there's online. The retail proposal disallows in-state collegiate wagering. The online proposal allows it. One proposal doesn't have any tax rate is subject to further negotiations. The online proposal sets forth a 10% tax rate and it's estimated that, that it would raise uh, in excess of half a billion dollars annually to combat homelessness. The whole, the entire online sports betting petition has been cast as a way to um, fund homelessness initiatives, which, you know, in, in the state of California, homelessness is a major, uh, a major problem. And that's intended to get the attention of the electorate. And they added a, a percentage of that tax that's going to go to the tribes who wouldn't be participating in the online. It's because you have the limitation on the retail, you have you have percentage of that tax that's also going to go and benefit the tribes who wouldn't yeah. be able to participate. Yeah, for the online proposal, there you know the, the the sports betting operators, the online operators are going to need to have market access agreements through Indian tribes. The the, the online sports betting operators' own proposal makes the California Indian tribes sort of the the uh, uh, customer facing license holder, and any online sports betting company that wants to offer their product needs to strike a market access deal with one or more of the tribes, but there are going to be certain tribes that don't want to participate in online sports betting. And under the online sports betting proposal, 80% of the tax collections are going to be earmarked for homelessness initiatives. And I think 10 to 15% are going to go to a trust or some kind of trust fund for the benefit of those California Indian tribes that opt not to participate in sports wagering. But given the language I just read earlier from the tribal retail proposal, I think the two different ballot questions are in conflict with one another because if the tribes are saying that you can only do sports betting safely at a facility and that the intent of the their proposal is to limit sports wagering to highly regulated and safe facilities, what they're saying in, in essence is that online gambling would violate 
that language within the tribal retail um, ballot question. So what do you do? What do you do if, the, if Californians are going to go to the ballot box? And, you know, the polling around the country over the last several years has, has been trending pretty favorably and heavily in favor of legalized sports betting. Most, most polling companies show overriding public support in favor of legalized sports betting. So if that holds up in California, we could end up in a situation where both of these initiatives pass. And Dan, here's here. I want to pitch this to you. I want to kick it right back to you because I know I know that you have all that you have this covered. I want to follow up with the, the fact that yes, there there has been a trend that that legalized sports gambling has been on a rise and, and is highly favorable. As well, I feel like online and there's also the, the statistics that online gambling, you know, being able to gamble directly from your phone in your home, not having to go out to the physical, that is something that that consumers like and enjoy as well. And it's a, it's an issue that. That when you had to go to a different state, you're on an app and it's you're geotagged, you have to go to a different state or if you go to physical retail. So online is also trending positive. But I want to kick it right back to you, Dan, because I know you're all over this. What happens if both pass and they are in conflict? What what happens then? Okay, well, they're definitely in conflict. I've just read language from the tribal retail proposal that makes crystal clear that the only way to do it is through in-person sports betting. So their own ballot proposal sets forth the conflict. So what happens if both achieve a numeric threshold, both both clear the 50% threshold? In California, you need a majority of the voters to you know, pass a, a proposed amendment to the state constitution. So you need 50.0001%. And if both measures clear that, then it will likely lead to post-election litigation because of a provision in the California Constitution, which I'm going to read here, which is Article 2, Section 10, Subdivision B, Section 10B of the California Constitution, which provides that if the provisions of two or more measures approved at the same election conflict, those of the measure receiving the highest affirmative vote shall prevail. And the leading uh, California court ruling on this case is taxpayers to limit campaign spending, which is a 1990 California Supreme Court decision. And their basic holding in the case is that unless contrary intent is apparent in the ballot measures, when two or more measures are competing initiatives, either because they are expressly offered as all or nothing alternatives, which isn't the case here, or because each creates a comprehensive regulatory scheme related to the same subject, Section 10B mandates that only the provisions of the measure receiving the highest number of affirmative votes be enforced. So what will likely happen is if both of these measures pass, the attorney general could commence litigation after election day, the California card rooms could file a lawsuit, the tribes could file a lawsuit, there will clearly be a post-election legal battle to uh, address the issue of whether the ballot initiatives are in conflict. And if they are in conflict, then the one that gets the most votes wins. So in the end, when the dust settles here, I think Californians are gonna be left with a clear choice. You can have retail sports betting, or you can have online sports betting, but I don't believe you can have both because of the conflict provision in the California constitution. So voters are gonna be faced with a choice. You can vote for both of them, but a yes vote for one is a no vote for the other. And a yes vote for both cancels both of them out. So I think as we get a little bit closer to election day, we're going to compare and drill down into these two competing initiatives and really get into the substance of each. But essentially, it's a choice between online sports betting and retail sports betting and whether collegiate wagering should be included is going to be a big issue because under the retail proposal, they're going to ban betting on games involving USC, UCLA, and all the California colleges. On the online proposal, there's no limitation relating to collegiate wagering. So I think that's going to be the big issue in California. And if you know collegiate wagering is a big part of the policy discussion in California, it's like on steroids, in Massachusetts, because Massachusetts has two different sports betting bills that have been approved by different houses in the state legislature. The Massachusetts House of Representatives has approved a sports betting bill that would allow unfettered wagering on collegiate sports, whereas the Senate passed its own sports betting bill that would completely 
prohibit wagering on collegiate sports. And the two houses, the Senate and the House, have appointed leaders or, I guess, representatives to negotiate or try to resolve the differences between the two approved bills as part of a conference committee. So can you believe this? College sports wagering is a key part of the debate in both California and Massachusetts. I mean, how how do you feel about uh, limitations and restrictions on collegiate wagering? Do you think they're sensible? Uh, do, Do you think there's a way to thread the needle here? I think we've we've talked about this on on prior episodes too. I mean, I I, I find that some of the original states that have legalized it, right, like New Jersey, it bans collegiate gambling on their um, within their state, which is even more kind of silly. Where you, why would you cap it? You know, I can, you could then just go to another state and then bet on that yeah. in state. So it's putting up barriers uh, when you when you start like nitpicking like that. Then here, what Massachusetts, the Senate wants to do is they want to do an all out ban. Now, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for these negotiation, these committee sessions, because I want to know the the reasoning that's going back and forth, because you have the Senate who is very opposed to to the collegiate sports. You have some some very, you know, successful college sports teams within Boston, within Massachusetts. Uh, It's a big area of revenue. But they don't want it. They're the ones, the Boston area schools and universities, they're the ones lobbying the Massachusetts Senate and the House for bans on collegiate sports betting. They They don't want their games corrupted. They don't want their athletes, you know, approached by gamblers. They're the ones at the front lines arguing for, for an all out ban on collegiate wagering. We talked about that with Joe Asher, and he's like, that's a silly situation to put your your college athletes in where you you have this imaginative bookie that's walking up to a college athlete being like, hey, you know, throw a couple of, you know, free throws and and I'll throw some money your way. You have college athletes who now have access to money through name, image and likeness. So so it's a different issue there. But and look, all of this is a political compromise anyway. Uh, I don't think there's a good reason to restrict wagering on collegiate sports, but these colleges have a lot of influence in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I think as a, as a political compromise, one of the deals that we've seen struck in at least 10, at least 10 states is, okay, okay, we'll have a, we'll have a ban uh, around betting on the in-state collegiate games. Right. And that's the compromise that lawmakers have, have struck in 10 or so states, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, New York. And I think that's where I think that's where you, you, you kind of reach the middle ground, at least on the collegiate wagering issue in Massachusetts. I wrote I wrote an op ed last week with John Nucci from Conduct Detrimental. We published great, a great op ed. We published it in Forbes and Commonwealth Magazine. Commonwealth Magazine uh, ran it at the same time. So we were published in two different uh, publications. And our, our, our theory and I guess our takeaway is look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel and come up with this unique solution to Massachusetts because other states have had the same policy debates. And you could look to some of the approaches taken in other states for, if not guidance, just some baseline for comparison, because there have been similar debates and the the lawmakers in the different chambers of their state legislatures have struck compromises along the lines of, I think, what the Massachusetts lawmakers have done. So even on the issue of the tax rate, right, 35% online sports betting, 15% in the house, you can find a number. Uh, Same thing with licensing fees, the number of licenses. There are all these examples to draw upon from other states, other similarly sized states that have roughly the same population size, uh, casinos and racetracks. There is a way to get a deal done if the lawmakers really, really want to see this happen because the house has approved a bill, the Senate has approved a bill, and the governor, Charlie Baker, wants to sign a bill into law. This, this would be the first state to ever fail at sports betting when all three, you know, all three key policymaking bodies were in favor of sports betting and they couldn't agree on the details. First and foremost, if you haven't read the op-ed that Dan wrote and Dan John Nucci, check our show notes. We're going to put the link to, to that article. It's a great read. It's it's very yeah. informative. I think you're right, Dan. You're spot on. The fact that they have three three areas where you, you have the governor, the Senate, and the House that all have agreed that they want to legalize sports gambling, but they can't come to agreement on the nitty-gritty and the details. And what's interesting, too, about Governor Baker is he's he's not rerunning for election, so he's leaving office. So he said put a bill on my desk and I'll sign it before I leave. So he's, he's fully prepared to sign this bill. The point John and I were trying to make is 
that I think the trend nationally is to enlist greater participation by potential stakeholders rather than limit the number of licenses. And every similarly sized state that has passed a sports betting law in the last year, year and a half is offering more licenses than what the Massachusetts Senate is proposing. And what I, what I was saying is look at what some of your, 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 your comparators are doing. And I think the trend here is to have the teams involved in, 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 in sports wagering, have bars and restaurants, you know, allow them to place kiosks on, on their, on their facilities. Dan, it's definitely um, something that is, on our radar, and we are going to keep watch because July 31st is the end of the regular session for Massachusetts. Um, so we'll keep you updated. They have to have some something on the table by July 31st. Um, so we're very, uh, very eager to see what they actually come up with in this committee and these negotiations. But ultimately, it boils down to we've talked. We're talking about two two big player states. California is obviously massive, and, and Dan talked about the, the, the revenue that's going to be brought in, and, and Massachusetts is a big state as well that, that has some big players and championship teams for, for sports betting. It is interesting that we have the NBA playoffs happening right now, the NBA championship happening right now, where you have two teams from each of these states. You have Golden State Warriors representing California, and you have the Boston Celtics representing Massachusetts, where both of these states are in the midst of essentially dragging their feet, where they are losing out on a lot of revenue, millions of revenue dollars from gambling within their state borders on these championship games because they have not yet legalized and not yet come to some sort of agreement or legalized sports gambling via the, the voting. Uh, out in California. So we're going to keep an eye on it. We're going to keep you updated. Also, if you are watching any, you have the NHL playoffs, we have the NBA playoffs, we've got MLB in full swing. Please make sure that you go check out Underdog Fantasy Sports. They are a great, it's a really easy to use. Uh, if you type, type in Underdog Fantasy in your uh, your app store, it's a really, really mobile-friendly uh, app where you can easily do pick-ems. Um, right now, exactly like I said, you, you can go through and, and do the, the, the pick-ems for the NBA playoffs. You have the NBA championship, you have the NHL, NHL Stanley Cup final, and then you have you have some some baseball if you want to get some action in there. So head head over to uh, Underdog Fantasy, and then if you use the code Conduct, they will match up to hundred dollars of your first deposit. There's this conference committee meeting in Boston. Oh, you know, between now and the end of July, and as fate would have it, the most influential gaming industry conference in North America, and I mean this because. The National Council of Legislators from Gaming States is an organization consisting of all the state lawmakers from states that, that, you know, that, that have gambling within their borders. And they're the conference committee chairs, the gaming committee chairs. So all the key legislators who write gaming bills are going to be converging on Boston and um, participating in this conference called Nickel G's. And the, 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 one of the members of the Massachusetts House of Representatives who's on the conference committee, Jerry Passarella, is giving the keynote speech at Nickel G's. Jason Robbins, the founder of DraftKings is giving the lunchtime keynote speech. This is a major gaming conference. And today we're going to have on um, the two conference co-chairs, Senator John Ford from Indiana and West Virginia delegate Sean Fluharty, who are going to talk a little bit about the conference, what to expect, why you should attend and discuss their efforts in the areas of sports wagering and iGaming and esports betting legislation. So, you know, coming up uh, you know, on the balance of the show, we're going to take a dive into some of the success stories and some of the obstacles that lawmakers have encountered uh, in the first four years of the post-PASPA era. So, you know, Michael, we're just going to turn it, we're going to pivot right into uh, a Nickel G's uh, interview with Senator Ford and Delegate Flority. All right, so let's uh, let's bring uh, Senator Ford and Delegate Flority out of the green room. You know, next on Conduct Detrimental, our interview. Well, it's Legislative Week on Conduct Detrimental, and I have the distinct privilege and honor of wel welcoming to the podcast uh, two influential state lawmakers that I've known uh, for several years who were first movers on sports betting legislation in their respective states. Joining me today is uh, Indiana State Senator John uh, Ford and West Virginia Delegate Sean Fluherty. Did I pronounce your name correctly, Sean? Fluherty, that's close enough. 
Okay. Um, in addition to serving as uh, as state legislators in their respective states, they also play a very prominent role in an industry conference that's uh, uh, just around the corner that is known as the National Council of Legislators from Gaming States. Senator Ford is the Vice President of Finance and uh, West and Delegate Flaherty is the Vice President of Membership. And you guys really like rolled a lucky seven with this conference. Uh, you're holding it in Boston, Massachusetts during the time, and it's gonna take place July, I think 6th through July 9th, uh, a long weekend in Boston, Thursday through Sunday. The Yankees are gonna be playing in Fenway that weekend. And it's also right in the middle of the conference committee uh, negotiations for the legalization of sports betting in Massachusetts. So John, Sean, uh, welcome to Conduct Instrumental. First off, uh, tell us tell us about the, the Nickel G's conference. What is it all about? Why is it so important? And how did you end up choosing Boston this year, this time when this issue is front and center? Well, thank you for having us uh, on the show. I appreciate it very much. And, you know, Nickel G's, we've uh, always take input from legislators across the state, across the country from our colleagues and really heard they wanted us to go to the Northeast and Boston. Who doesn't like to visit Boston? And uh, as you said, we kind of got lucky. You know, we didn't know when we picked Boston that uh, Massachusetts would be debating sports wagering. And certainly, uh, at least I didn't know that the Yankees and Red Sox would be playing. Oh, but, come on. Really? That was just a stroke of luck? Well, I'm an Orioles fan, so I don't okay. really pay attention to the group. But, uh, you know, we're, it's, we're looking forward to the conference. We've got a great slate of speakers. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a, a good conference for uh, legislators that are dealing with uh, gaming to come and learn a lot. Okay, uh, educate our audience who may not, which may not be familiar with Nickel G's. It's an acronym for the National Council of Legislators from Gaming States. Sean, who, who attends these conferences? Who is part of the membership? Just so that the audience can understand really why this is such a, an influential group of lawmakers and why it's so important within the industry. Dan, thanks for having me. It's always great speaking with you. I know years in the making and you keep, uh, you've always been at the forefront of sports betting, especially the legal side and legislative side. So happy to join you today. So Nickel G's is comprised of nearly, I believe, 21 to 22 member states currently. And every conference we have, we have two a year, a summer conference and a winter conference. And legislators obviously also comprise membership of Nickel G's, but also regulators are involved. And if you look at all the panels that we have in our summer and winter meetings, uh, we really have kind of the who's who, not just legislatively, but in the industry itself. For instance, in the upcoming Boston, uh, Boston meeting that you talked about, actually it's July 7th through July 10th are the dates. So we, we have that accurate for, for the record. But uh, I, I include going out the night before as part hey, of the everybody wants to go out the night before. I mean, that's how you that's how you, you break bread and, and make things happen. But, you know, uh, so uh, Jason Robins, the CEO of DraftKings, is going to be a keynote speaker that we just announced today, actually. So it's a bit of a breaking news for you, Dan, as far as who will be there. We also have representatives from the state of Massachusetts, including Jerry uh, Paracella, who is actually the chair of the um, Committee on Economic Development, where I believe the sports betting legislation currently resides and. You know, like you said, this is a great time to be in Massachusetts because they are one at the forefront of the next states that we've seen like these coming waves that are on the brink of passing sports betting legislation. And obviously they have some issues. I know on the Senate side, they want to pass legislation without collegiate sports being part of the legislation versus the House side where they want to make that part of their bill. So that's kind of the rub and that happens in between the, the lines legislatively. And we're happy to be in Boston and we sit down as a group before we decide on which cities to go to. And we talk about who's next, who's at the forefront, what's, what's the next wave looking like and what cities can we go to that provide a great conference on one end. Look, we're going to go to the Red Sox-Yankees game, which I've never been to a Red Sox-Yankees matchup. I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure many attendees are as well. Yeah, what's the uh, sort of the value for, you know, lawyers, law students, anyone who's not a lawmaker, why, why attend the conference? Really, what, what, what kind of, I imagine, and I've experienced it, you know, first time I ever spoke at a conference was Nickel G's Winter Conference, Hollywood, Florida. It was December or no, January 2014. That was my first speaking engagement ever. It created a monster right now. And the first time I ever spoke anywhere, now you can't shut me up. But I understand full well the networking that goes on at, at the event. But why is it so uh, important and valuable 
for uh, people in the industry who aren't lawmakers, and maybe even for law students who are interested to learn more about the industry. Why, where, do you, why do you, where do you see the value in attending a conference like this? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the strong value you know, for legislators, these are panels designed by legislators, moderated by legislators, really to help give us uh, input from the industry and from the legal community on questions we may have. But for the industry, it's that networking with legislators um, and they can help put forth ideas to help move uh, gaming forward in various states. Yeah, I mean, you could create like forge relationships with other people within the industry, with lawmakers. I remember we had dinner, right? We had dinner in Miami Beach a couple of years ago. I don't think it was part of a Nickel G's conference. So that was like one way that we could get to know each other better. But on the flip side, uh, I don't think the meal worked out very well for you. So they, they sort of counterbalance each other sometimes. You have your positive experiences. And then the, uh, I think overall it was a great meal. Uh, but tell us about some of the panels in particular that might be of interest. Uh, to folks that are interested in sports betting and the gaming industry, you're going to have like, you know, some of the professional sports leagues, uh, casino operators, uh, gaming companies. You mentioned Jason Robbins, and you're going to also have lottery um, officials. Uh, tell us about some of the programming that's going to take place uh, in early July in Boston. Well, one that really stands out that uh, I'll actually be chairing is, is one that's going to relate to sports leagues. And Dan, as you know, when you know, we're on the brink of PASPA being overturned and states were lining up. I know West Virginia, I had already introduced legislation. We were moving it forward and we actually passed it prior to PASPA being overturned. But the sports leagues played a big role in that in the sense that they were really against it from the get go. They wanted their integrity fee. They wanted all these different things lined up in sports betting legislation that they didn't necessarily get. And now we're going to have a panel, which includes, uh, I want to make sure I get everybody right here, Dave Friedman, who's the executive vice president of legal and government affairs for the Red Sox. And we're going to have a panel about where the sports leagues are now, how has it played out for the sports leagues, and where do they stand now on the issue of sports gaming going forward. And I think it's going to be one panel that really sets us apart from many other uh, panels that are out there that are related to sports gaming or the betting industry in general, is that you're going to have uh, people like myself there who have gone through the process, passing legislation, and the positives and detriments that come with that. And at the same time, those who are within the industry and within the leagues themselves chiming in on this and, and giving us their positions and how have their positions changed since past was overturned. And now we have nearly two thirds of the country with some sports betting legislation in place. Yeah, John and Sean, your states were among the first. I think I think uh, Delegate Flurry, your West Virginia was the first state to enact a sports betting law after the U.S. Supreme Court oral argument in which the, you know, the tea leaves, I mean, you could read the tea leaves. You knew that the Supreme Court was, over, was going to overturn PASPA. You were the first state, West Virginia, to react and pass a law. And I think Indiana came soon thereafter. But your states represented sort of the, the, the first efforts by the professional leagues, you know, the NBA, Major League Baseball. I, th I think the first integrity fee bill came out of Indiana. And there was like a battle royal in West Virginia over trying to, you know, shoehorn Oh, yeah. The, the integrity fee within the bill. And they got the governor involved to try uh, to hang right. up the legislation. So can you can you give us some context about your experiences yeah. in uh, dealing with some of those asks by the professional leagues and how that debate unfolded and, and what was sort of how it went down? Because it all began with your two states. Yeah, Dan, you have a great memory because they came in at the 11th hour. So I was first elected in 2014. Obviously, our legislative session starts in 15 and one of the first bills I ran out, sports betting and iGaming. And I understood where we were at. I practiced law, as you know, Dan, and I knew that PASPA was, we had, we had running through the courts and we knew this is a great chance for us to get out in front of something. I, there's one issue I always have with West Virginia, we're usually last in line on things. So this was an opportunity for us to be first in line. And you're correct. We were first in line. And at the 11th hour, the leagues are looking at little West Virginia. They weren't necessarily concerned with, you know, the 1.8 million people that we have here who may be participating in sports betting, they were concerned with the precedent that it would set, that if a state like West Virginia is first out the gate and we don't have an integrity fee, how does that influence the rest of legislation coming down the pike, like in Indiana and other places, and how will that work out for them? So they came in at the 11th hour, they hired all the big guns, they had a closed-door meeting with our governor in, in, in West Virginia Lottery, and that all played out in the media, and I believe you even came on statewide radio because we were friends at the time, and said, Dan, this is a huge issue. 
get on the radio here and let's talk about it here in West Virginia. And they wanted their integrity fee because there's relationships with the governor's office and mm-hmm. Major League Baseball and the PGA in particular. And Major League Baseball brought their guns here and said, hey, look, we're going to have this fight out here on the House floor. They had their little one pagers ready that were put on all the legislators desks. But quite frankly, it was too late. You know, we had the votes. We had the educated legislators who knew when I was pushing this two years prior that this was going to happen. They already knew what was going to take place. And I explained to them, we're not giving them that integrity fee. No way in hell are we giving this integrity fee because we've worked too hard to, to have a great bill in place and we can't have it touched by outside influences at the 11th hour. John, the integrity fee emerged for the first time in an Indiana bill. I think that was sponsored by a lawmaker other than you, even though you were the ultimate architect or one of the chief architects of the Indiana sports betting law. Can you explain uh, how that process unfolded and w- what kind of discussion or debate emerged around that issue within Indiana? Yeah, so here in Indiana, we had two bills, my bill without an integrity fee and Representative Morrison's bill with a fee. And we had a big debate about it. And really, like Sean said, it came down to education. Um, Really spent the time to educate my colleagues in the House and the Senate. Um, You know, similar to West Virginia, the, the big guns were hired and a lot of pressure put on us by major league sports and um, even IndyCar racing, which, you know, here in Indiana is, is, uh, has a huge influence. Um, but through education, um, really we're able to uh, nullify that bill and it didn't get a hearing. Uh, my bill moved forward and, uh, you know, we got, I think, a very successful rollout of sports wagering. All right. Uh, since you're first out or, or, you know, first movers in sports, but you've had an opportunity to see dozens of other states approach sports betting in a slightly different manner. And you're beginning to see tax rates begin to creep up. You know, Tennessee, uh, 20%, Pennsylvania, which was prior to both your states, 34%, but the, you know, some of the recent ones in New Hampshire, New York State, 51%, 51%, Massachusetts. On the Senate side, they're looking for 35%. Your states are almost, or probably near the lowest strata of tax rates around sports betting in the country. Uh, West Virginia, I, I, I don't know the exact rate, it might be high single digits, low teens. Well, how much? And Indiana, what's the, what's the retail and online uh, tax uh, rate? Nine, 9%. Um, is there any opportunity or any desire to revisit some of these tax rates in light of recent events and seeing how much money other states are generating by sports betting? Is there, how difficult would it be to revisit a bill? Is this something, you know, top of mind uh, in the future as states begin to look at some of the second and third mover states doing things somewhat differently? Well, you know, I think, you know, here in Indiana, we've not had any discussion about increasing the rate. You know, when we were going through the process, it was really important to keep the the tax rate low so that we could bring the gray market, black market into the sports wagering environment. Um, and I think when we look at other, you know, items, other industries, you know, like the cannabis in, industry, you know, states that have taxed that uh, at high rates also have high black market rates. So using that as kind of an example, we've been able to, you know, really uh, keep the rate tax rate low. And, you know, and I would encourage every state to, to keep a low tax rate on, on sports wagering because there's not much margin uh, at the end of the day in sports wagering. Yeah, I think John's spot on and we're at, you know, at the time, we really had no model to work off of. You know, we hired Eilers and Krychek and we did our due diligence in, in understanding what the participation rate would be in West Virginia and how we could bring people into West Virginia at the time. And I think that's still the consideration as other states will as well. You know, these other tax rates that are outrageous in their number, we'll see how that plays out down the road. I think you're going to find states like West Virginia at 10% aren't going to move where they're currently at in states that are, you know, upwards like the New York, New York situation, they're going to come back down to earth at some point. I can't see that playing out. And I think, Dan, as you know, these companies are coming in, spending a lot of money, especially in the advertising side, trying to capture the market. But they're also there knowing that iGaming is coming down next. That's the next move. And that's the real incentive for these companies to kind of take it on the chin with these tax rates right now, because they know that down the road, the return on their investment through iGaming is going to be substantially more than it's going to be through sports betting. And it's going to be probably two to three times more, and in some cases, even more than that. So they want to capture that market, and they're willing to take this high tax rate right now. But I think if you start talking to them, especially in New York, 
they're not real happy. I've, I've seen some gripes coming out on social media and you've and others as well, and that that's it's a real issue. So I, I don't think that we will be changing our position. I think you'll see states like Indiana and West Virginia potentially look at different classifications of licenses being available. The state of Maryland, for instance, is doing that, as you know, Dan, and other states are looking, you know, if you're going back, you can't really uh, rewrite everything, but you can expand in certain areas. I think that would be something when you have participation with bars and restaurants, they want a piece of the pie as well. And there's pros and cons to all that. And we talked about that with uh, Nickel G's in Maryland recently. That's something I think you'll see as the next move for states like ours. Well, let's let's talk about that because uh, Indiana and West Virginia uh, passed their sports betting laws way before these professional sports teams began to push to be included in the sports betting licensing system. And since your states went online, uh, you know, Maryland, Ohio, Arizona, and bills pending in other states like Missouri have carved out online and retail sports betting licenses for the professional sports teams on that state. And, and, and I noticed, Sean, that uh, one, of, one of your panelists on the Major League Sports Betting panel is, a, is an executive with the Boston Red Sox. Um, in your efforts to expand the sort of the, the handle and maybe even lure professional sports franchises to your states in West Virginia, uh, Senator Ford, Delegate Florida, is there any appetite to expand the marketplace and expand the you know, ecosystem for sports betting to allow the teams to be part of the licensing system. Is there, a, do you see upside associated with that? And would that help a state like Pennsylvania, a, a Commonwealth like West Virginia? Are you a Commonwealth or a state? State. You're a state, a state like West Virginia. Virginia's that, Commonwealth. Okay, that could be instrumental in trying to lure professional sports franchises. Kansas recently <laughs> did that. They're gonna create a trust fund where 80% of their, their sports wagering um, tax revenues are going to be earmarked towards, uh, you know, attracting a pro sports franchise. So what kind of interest would there be in, in some of your states for allowing the teams to be part of this licensing system? Yeah, I think here in Indiana, the teams have uh, access to different licenses that the casinos, brick and mortar casinos have. Uh, and they have not really uh, approached that. What the approach they've done is uh, created these lounges with high-speed internet and you know areas for people to come and enjoy uh, gaming while watching events. Uh, but I've not heard from any of my major league sports uh, about you know having specific licenses just for them. You may now uh, if they hear this. Uh, if, uh, if they want to, if anybody wants to bring a professional team to West, West Virginia, which we currently lack, I will roll out the red carpet on any piece of legislation they want because we desperately need a professional sports team. We have the West Virginia Mountaineers. That's our professional sports team. We have Marshall University. You know, they have a unique perspective in our state compared to others because they are considered the professional sports teams here. And that's why things like legislation coming out without collegiate sports would never make any sense here in West Virginia. And quite, quite frankly, it does not make sense in any state. But if Major League Baseball wants to bring a team, then I'll roll out the red carpet and sell everybody else if they want to bring a team into the state. And, you know, I know the commanders are looking the in, – Yeah. In, uh, hey, Dan, Snyder, Dan Snyder has a for sale sign that's on right. his franchise. At, you know, highest bidder, most public money, most sports betting revenues will get the hey, team. The, the Eastern Panhandle in West Virginia sits right on the border. They could hop right over – We'll make it nice for them. We have a beautiful casino over there, great scenery. We'll roll out the carpet. But, yeah, I mean, Danny, I think um, sports wagering is going to open the door for league expansion, which I think is your your point here. And, and I, I know just last week LeBron James made the comment he wanted to bring a team to Las Vegas, right, And and which they've had sports wagering for many years. But now it's, it's, it's full front and center, and it's something that I think participation rate, people are watching these games longer. I mean, if you're in the NFL and you're watching the Browns uh, Browns game and they've been horrendous for many years, I'm not a Browns fan. That's why I'm kind of uh, throwing them on the bus right now. But you're going to watch the games longer. And that's revenue for everybody. That's revenue for the leagues. That's revenue for advertisers. That's revenue across the board. And that's why I was vehemently against the integrity fee because they're going to make a lot of money already under current legislation that's pending in many states and ours at the time. But to the point is now with all this participation that was not being was not revenue generating participation prior to legalization, it was all black market. They weren't making money, maybe in Vegas a little bit. But beyond that, now we have revenue generation that we haven't seen before for these leagues. 
And I believe it was Mark Cuban at the time that said basically the Dallas Mavericks and every owner under the sun has basically doubled the value of their team. And I don't think he's wrong. I mean, I'd love for him to come back to Pittsburgh, his hometown, which I live nearby, and buy the Pirates because we could desperately use a team in Pittsburgh as well for Major League Baseball at this point. So I think we're going to have uh, just a unique situation for expansion if you are an operator and if you are a, a league owner. And you've seen it, Dan, the participation with the leagues now. I mean, you can't turn it. I, we had our conference in Chicago, and I went to a, a Cubs game when we were out there. This is our, our most recent conference in Chicago. And these, these sports advertising for sports betting was all over the place around Wrigley Field. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, Major League Baseball, who won't let Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame, is now a participant in sports wagering, and they're, and they're happily doing so. And they, they're the ones who came to West Virginia and said, well, we don't want this current piece of legislation. We want an integrity fee. And, you know, how things have changed in a quite a, just a few years. And I'm looking forward to that conversation at Nickel Cheese in Boston because I think it's going to be a unique perspective. Yeah, well, Boston, Massachusetts is seeking to uh, restrict that kind of advertising. It may, not, it may not be as ubiquitous in the sports venues as it is in other states. They're going to impose, if the Gaming Commission and Senate have their way, uh, you know, a, a restriction on the type of ads that can be placed in the, in the sports venue in a way that wouldn't be disruptive of the viewing experience. But I guess that's a conversation for March. Let's turn to iGaming. You know, you've, you've been fond of saying, and I think both Senator Ford and uh, Delegate Flaherty have their own experiences with trying to pass iGaming legislation. But, but uh, Sean, you've been uh, on the conference circuit and speaking circuit, trotting out the great golf metaphor uh, that sports betting is for show, iGaming is for the dough. Can you elaborate on that point and talk about your efforts to bring iGaming to West Virginia and some of the struggles that uh, legislators in a multitude of states face in trying to bring iGaming to fruition when they've had much more success in sports betting and, and fantasy sports? Yeah, so sports betting basically sucks up all the oxygen in the room right now. And because it's very popular, People understand it, they know it, they participate in it. I game, which I game in your I casinos, different ball game. So in West Virginia, we were able to pass sports betting the first year and then run it right back in the second year and pass I gaming. So we were one of the first of the few states to have both operating and functional at the state level. And I think that's obviously the next wave. Two thirds of states are now online with sports betting. You're going to see states moving into the I gaming area because if you're an operator, that's where you want, that's the space you want to be in. And when I say that, it's the golf, uh, you know, metaphor you're talking about, Dan, is drive for show, putt for dough, and sports betting, it's, it's sports betting for show, I gaming for dough. And what I mean by that, if you're a legislator and you're looking at prospective legislation and you're already getting into the gaming sector and you're talking about sports betting, it makes perfect sense to move right into iGaming. Ideally, you'd want to do it both at the same time, but that's a heavy haul for a lot of legislators. Gambling legislation is still not super popular with legislators. Well, maybe we need to elect some younger legislators who are okay with it. But I remember when we were on the circus to begin with, Dan, uh, everybody talking about sports betting, politicians get scared. They're scared of their own shadow. They might lose a couple points. They don't know. So you have to, as John said earlier, educate your colleagues as to what's happening with this legislation and why it's a positive move for many states. And iGaming in particular will bring you more money than sports betting, more participation. And if you're an operator, obviously that's where you're going to have a return on your investment more so. So it's it's beneficial to both states and uh, the operators who want to come into that area. Senator Ford, why has it been such a challenge to pass iGaming legislation in Indiana? If memory serves me correctly, you've had uh, bills uh, authorizing iGaming in two or three successive legislative sessions. They haven't gone anywhere. Can you talk about some of those efforts and the challenges you face and that other lawmakers across the country face in passing an iGaming bill when over 40 states have casinos, uh, 35 states allow sports betting and an almost an equivalent number of states or more have state lotteries and, and other forms of gambling. Why has it been so difficult? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to be honest, I think kind of the success of sports wagering um, has made some legislators nervous about the success iGaming may have here in the state of Indiana. But also, you know, COVID in the mix and some other major legislation that we've had to work on kind of has uh, mm-hmm. taken uh, the forefront. But it's also, again, education, right? A lot of my colleagues really don't understand what iGaming is. And, you know, we have to educate them that it's going on in our state right now regardless if we legalize it or not, 
There's illegal games that people can get on online and they're doing it here in Indiana. So, you know, bringing this into the regulated market is, you know, going to be a way I think that it moves forward. You know, we're pretty healthy financially. So that statement that, you know, we, we may need it financially, you know, we just don't need it financially here in Indiana right now. So we've got to take a different route. And I think proposing that black market route is going to be how we get it done. But I think this year, you know, we're bringing a lot of people to Nickel G's where, um, you know, Nickel G's has got a number of panels focused on iGaming, uh, one panel specifically on iGaming and emerging forms of gaming. Uh, iLottery, I think Sean's got a, a committee that will be talk, taking that issue up. Um, and then I think we've got some discussions on uh, the Wire Act, which is something that is important to iLottery and iGaming. Yeah, speaking of emerging forms of gaming, uh, I'd be remiss to talk about sports betting and not bring up esports. You know, in other in other regulated markets in other countries, sports betting and esports often go hand in hand. Yet, uh, esports has been slow within the United States to enter sort of the be, to be legalized and to be a form of betting that's folded within the sports betting legislation. So why has it taken so long for esports to achieve almost parity with sports wagering? And I know, Sean, you've had some of your own efforts in, in West Virginia get really, really close. So can you, can you tell us about the status of the West Virginia esports betting bill and where you see esports fitting in down the road? And I guess I would open this up to both of you. Sure. So, that's, you know, we always want to be at the forefront. That was my argument when we passed sports betting originally. That was my argument for iGaming, uh, as well as my argument was raising revenue without raising taxes. And I think, as John pointed out, a lot of these states are not uh, seeking the money they're, they're used to seek because a lot of those COVID funds are still there. But that's drying up. And I think back to your point on iGaming, these states are now going to start looking at iGaming as a revenue generator. And I think you're going to see a wave hit soon. But with esports, we did clarify this past session, which I argued our sports betting legislation was broad enough and could be interpreted to already allow for esports. But we did pass legislation this past session clarifying that that esports is allowed now in West Virginia, even though I believe it was prior to. But that's the next wave. You know, you see out west, it's very popular. It's very popular with younger generations, and it's something that uh, it, certainly, if you're looking at expansion and always evolving with the times, that's the next thing coming down the road. And I, and I suspect, and that's why we'll be talking about it at Nickel G's in upcoming conferences as well, because, you know, that's always going to be at the forefront. What's next down the road? I think the licensing issue with states, as we discussed earlier, is, is down the road and esports obviously comes in with that as well. Yeah, John, anything to add on the esports? And, and, and I want to talk about iLottery as well, because I think less than 10 states have internet-based lotteries, which is like shocking to me, given how, how prolific, you know, the use of the internet is. So uh, any chance of esports uh, receiving widespread recognition legislatively in, in the coming years? Well, I think there's a few things that, you know, legislators struggle with uh, on esports is one, there's no major league, um, you know, that's regulating it. And I think also just that perception that it's just, it's kids, that kids are playing it. And the reality is there's a whole industry and it's not, you know, it's not kids and it, they're professional and they have leagues and they fill up places uh, all across this country. Um, and so I just think it's, again, you know, back to education, right, that, that let people know that it's, you know, there are leagues out there. And I, and I think the leagues are forming and getting better and you know, becoming more mainstream. But I, I do think that that's a part of it, especially when you talk with regulators you know, they're concerned that, you know, some of these leagues um, don't have enough regulations in place to, to cover cheating. Um, but iLottery is, uh, you know, here in Indiana, we're, uh, we're probably going to have that iLottery debate this next session. Um, and, you know, I think, again, it, it goes back to, you know, how successful we're with sports wagering. Are we ready to uh, move to iLottery to really allow people to do it without going into brick and mortar facilities. Yeah, Sean, uh, you're hosting or moderating a panel um, entitled, I guess it's the Committee on Lotteries. You're gonna have uh, Greg Smith, the president and CEO of the Connecticut Lottery, which by the way is overseeing uh, you know, sports wagering to some degree in Connecticut. You're gonna have May Sheev Reardon, uh, the director of the Missouri Lottery, and they've been immersed in this debate uh, within Missouri over uh, video lottery terminals, and there've been struggles in trying to get sports betting passed. So all these topics that we're discussing today, 
they're going to be front and center at the Nickel G Summer Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. So um, you got to tell us how, if anyone's interested in attending the conference, and if you follow the gaming industry and are part of the gaming industry or just interested in it, this is the best conference in terms of uh, you know, educational panels, learning about where the industry is headed, trends, policy debates. There's no comparison to, to the Nickel G Summer Conference. So uh, John, Sean, tell our uh, audience, our listeners, how they can attend the conference. Is, is it sold out? Is there a way to still get tickets? How much? Uh, give us the, 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 the down and dirty details, because I, I think this is a, if you were to pick one or two conferences in the gaming space to attend every year, this is one of those two. Uh, I'll go with it, John, for now. You know, the nickelgs.org, you learn about the conference, nclgs.org. You learn about the conference, you can uh, sign up there, become registered. If you are a state legislator, you will get a stipend if you're from a member state, and that would help you for travel and getting there, and your hotel accommodations. And if you are somebody who, who wants to learn more about it, or if you're an operator, regulator, it doesn't matter. You're getting every perspective that Nickel G's. You're getting the legislative perspective, which I think is super unique to our conference compared to others, because you're going to have people like John and myself who know the inside baseball on how legislation gets passed, the pros and cons, how to get a bill across the finish line, which I think many states, and you follow them regularly, Dan, many states are trying to do right now for both sports betting and iGaming. You're going to get the regulator side. You're going to get people who serve on um, commissions and kind of the, the fight within interstate fighting that you have between the lottery side, the commission side, the regulators, and those in between will all be there with their perspective. So it's kind of emerging of every angle and view that I think makes up the entire gaming industry as a whole. And, and it's something that is very unique to this conference. I would argue is one that uh, is not available at any other conference. So it makes it unique. And you talked about Dan, if you're a law student or attorney, those that that are can get CLE. You can get CLE hours for these conferences that we have, which again is another perk if you're looking to come out. So you know, it, I, to come. I, I've gone to eight years worth of these conferences. I've never seen a law student attend any of them, and, and yet all of them doesn't make up, sense. All of them come up to me. How do I break into the industry? How do I meet people in the industry? Well, just go to the Nickel G's conference. Go to one of the leading gaming conferences, and invariably you know, none show up. And I, I find this one of the most bizarre occurrences. Uh, I'm sure there, there, there's some lower rate for students and I would highly encourage law students and young lawyers uh, to attend this conference. It's in Boston in early July. You can meet Sean, John, myself, some of the leading state lawmakers in the gaming space, operators, people who are, uh, you know, important executives at their, at, their, at their various gaming companies, operators, suppliers. And then on top of that, Yankees, Red Sox, four games series and some of the best Italian food in the United States uh, on the north end. So I'm anxiously looking forward uh, to the conference July 7th, 8th and 9th in Boston. And if you uh, want to attend or want to learn more about the conference, uh, go to nickelgs.org and the agenda for the conference and registration details are going to be all there. Uh, you know, all, all the information you need, it's being held at the Weston Copley Hotel uh, in the, uh, I guess, where, where, where's, where's that area within Boston? It's the, uh, it, I don't know, it's not too far away from anything. It's near Fenway, but there's so many hotels in Boston, so there should be ample hotel space. If you're interested, interested in attending, just go to nickelgees.org. Senator Ford, um, Delegate Flaherty, thank you so much for joining me on Conduct Detrimental, and I look forward to seeing both of you in a few weeks in Boston in, in what's shaping up as a really timely and important conference, especially in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as they begin trying to debate the issues around sports betting and find some type of compromise that would make Massachusetts the 35th state in the US to legalize sports betting. But overall, this is gonna cover the national spotlight and scope of gaming legislation across the country on casinos, horse racing, esports iLottery, sports betting, and uh, it's going to be a terrific conference. I look forward to seeing both of you there uh, in a few weeks. Well, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. And look forward to seeing you both uh, in Boston. Thanks, Dan. I'll see you guys there. Okay. So that was Senator Ford and Delegate Fluherty. Dan, great interview. I want to hear some of your key takeaways here. Or what are some key points that you, you heard from Ford and Fluherty? 
Well, the gambling legislation is a very heavy lift, no matter what state you're in. I think in, in 2022, we've only had two states pass sports betting bills. I mean, we, we, we got off to such a great start in 19, 20, 21, uh, but there are only 50 states. You can't pass a dozen bills every year. But this year, the number of success stories is outweighed by the number of failures. I mean, Georgia, Kentucky, Alabama, uh, you know, Florida, you know, stand out as, as as states that have failed in their in their quest to legalize sports betting, and we only have Maine and Kansas as as two of the success stories. So, you know, some of the reasons uh, you know we discussed during our interview. First of all, gambling legislation is going to be very difficult anyway. Uh, it's usually a controversial topic in normal years, which is one of the reasons why iGaming has been in the back of the queue because they're trying to address sports betting first, which is a little bit more of a popular subject matter for, for passing legislation. And, and then there are the stakeholder issues, right? You have competition and disagreements among the in-state stakeholders. You're seeing that issue play out in California with the tribes, the card rooms, and the online sports betting operators. There's never any harmony, you know, because in many states, there are going to be groups that want to have either a monopoly or have first position when it comes to the right to offer sports betting. The casinos in Massachusetts, they don't want to have to share the marketplace with that many online companies. They want to have control or at least some semblance of, of dominance of the marketplace within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So there are so many reasons why it's a heavy lift, even in, even in normal years. But this year stands out as a, as a notable notable. Uh, you know, it's kind of kind of slowing down of the momentum. So, uh, you know, anyone in our audience who's really focused on on gambling as a career, sports betting, and follows this industry, I highly recommend that you attend the uh, Nicolge's conference July seventh through 9th in Boston. For all the law students who ask about, well, how do you how do you find jobs in this industry? Uh, I've been to conferences like all uh, throughout the last eight years around the gaming industry. Very few students ever show up to these conferences. Uh, going to Nickelgees will be a great educational experience. You'll get CLE credits and you'll have a chance to interact with, uh, you know, C-level type people within the gaming companies, as well as law lawyers, lobbyists, advisors. It's a really good environment to speak to, uh, you know, people who are plugged into the industry in a very informal environment. So that's really the big, aside from G2E, uh, that's probably the biggest or most influential conference in the gaming industry in North America. So uh, I'm glad we're able to do a show uh, around sports betting and iGaming. And uh, these issues are going to remain at the forefront in California. It's going to be a crazy advertising campaign as we approach July, August, September, October, November. Once the online uh, proposal qualifies for the ballot, you're going to see campaign spending and commercials on the airwaves and uh, you know, several hundred million dollars of advertising buys just to get the message across. One key word, what you just said is control. Uh, uh, we talked about at the top of this episode, uh, how everybody seems to agree. And then there's definitely an overwhelming su uh, support and in favor of legalizing sports gambling. But control is the issue. And, and ultimately, we're seeing this in Massachusetts, where we have the Senate and the House and the governor all saying they want to legalize it, but they, they want that control. In California, we have two competing bills that want control. Ultimately, that's the issue. So at least in California, the public gets to decide. Right. But they may not have any idea of where this will ultimately head. It's going to land in the courts. Right. The public thinks that they're going to be able to have both retail and online. And then, oh, by the way, uh, there's going to be a lawsuit to determine whether there's a conflict between the initiatives. So that's going to be the A number one story in the sports betting landscape for the balance of the year. Uh, you know, the march towards Election Day in California is far and away the number one story in the gaming industry for the balance of 2022. And we'll we'll devote a couple of more episodes to this topic and we'll really dive in uh, to some of the details on future episodes. California is gonna continue to pro provide us all the way up until that ballot yeah. in November. However, Massachusetts is a little closer. Uh, you know, We've gotta see something hit the table by the end of July, July 31st. So that, that's gonna provide some, yeah. some Closer content here, but well, ultimately, I like what you said, Dan. Uh, you, we we love to encourage law students to get out there. Uh, what can you do to network? It's it's perfect to go to the Nickel G Conference, July seventh through 9th. And we talked about, like I said, end of July is July thirty first. We have this ultimate 
ultimately we have the uh, the end of the regular session for Massachusetts to get a bill uh, agreed upon from this negotiation negotiating in the committee that they have. Um, but another another key for for all of our viewers and our listeners out there, uh, Themis Bar. We, we've got the bar exam coming up end of July. That's a date that we're looking at, and uh, this this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. And and for those of you who are in the midst, you know we're we're in the middle of of June now. You should be ramping up and really getting into uh, a lot of your your core topics here as you as you go through the the multiple choice and the essays. And ultimately, if you if you are a one L two L and you're looking for bar prep, head over to themisbar.com forward slash con detrimental. You can find out more information about Themis Bar. I wish I had taken Themis back in the day. You know, when I sat for the Florida Bar exam, I was already a, a New York licensed attorney in, in, in 1992, I passed the bar, but I moved to Florida in 2000 and I took one of these bar review courses. I won't name the bar review course. Uh, when I actually sat for the bar exam in Tampa in February of 2001, uh, I had to leave one of my essay questions blank because I didn't properly manage time. I failed time management. And that's really important. Just as it's important for an NFL head coach and, a, and, a, and, a, and an assistant coach in the NFL, you gotta, you know, you really gotta understand time management. I blew it, I screwed it up, left a question blank, and I'm so lucky I passed the bar exam. Maybe if I had taken Themis, uh, I would have been better prepared to handle some of these essay questions instead of obsessing over four out of five and not leaving myself enough time to pass the fifth. But, you know, thankfully I passed and we're here today, but uh, taking the right bar review course is a, is an important decision. And I'm glad that uh, we, today we have more choices than existed uh, when I took the bar back in 1992 and 2001 and in Themis, sets the standard for bar review courses. So on that note, Michael, I guess we have we have an episode in the books. It's our first sports betting centric episode, probably since we talked about Georgia and, and Kansas and Missouri, maybe about two months ago. So it's good to be back, back into the swing of things with sports betting. And I'm sure we're going to have a few more shows like that coming down the pike. So for Mike Lawson, I'm Daniel Wallach. Thanks for joining us on Conduct Detrimental this week. And we'll see you again next week for some regularly scheduled sports law programs. So goodbye, everybody. 